Eric McCoy. Welcome back to the podcast that encourages highness. Highness isn't a property of drugs, but a property of people, which is why I call this Recovering Through Highness. I'm really excited about today's episode because I have a guest today who recently, and actually very recently, published a book. Yes, about um, two months ago, actually. And it's called From a Park Bench to Park Avenue? Yes, indeed. Anthony Brown has an amazing story that fits really well with my motto that I described in Pain, Failure, and Misery are the stepping stones to success, which is no matter where you've been or what you've done, you can do anything you want if you're willing to fight for it. And I want to say I I really appreciate your honesty that is difficult sometimes, especially to put into a book. And was that something that was hard for you? Writing a book was interesting because everyone... I, I, I talk a lot, and everybody said, well, you should put your story into a book. And I said, okay, well, that's a good idea. And so I prayed about it, and I sat down and wrote the book. He talks about some very, very important issues, especially what we're seeing today in terms of, obviously, substance abuse, homelessness, which seems to really be growing, and racism. And so these are some of the topics that I want to talk to you about. And I'm also, as I was saying, I'm very well known for lacking a filter when it comes to discussing topics that, you know, topics, issues, or problems that I find very important to discuss. And so, again, I want to thank you for being here. And I wanted to start this with talking a little bit about your childhood and ultimately, I think, what led up to the homelessness and, and I guess, and where were you from originally? I'm from Ohio originally. And so, obviously, somehow, in some time, you ended up in California. Yes, I did. So, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Okay, my childhood, I'm a product of a a single-parent home. My mother raised me and my brother, my two sisters. Up until my brother was 16, he stayed um, with us. Then he went on to live with my grandmother. Then that left me with uh, two sisters. Uh, One was older than me, and the other one was younger than me, and it's Pretty interesting when I look back at it is that um, in between those two girls, I was the middle. But basically, my childhood with a single parent involved a lot of drinking. Uh, my mother drank a lot, and um, we were there to help her out. She she worked, but taking care of three kids by yourself and drinking was what I was what I was around. I remember um, she would have parties with friends there, and uh, they would come, and everybody would drink and leave some drinks on the table, and I'd go behind them and pick up half-empty beer cans and drink out of it and, you know, get some attention from that because once I get drunk, I start acting silly. And, you know, that sort of formed my whole model of my life. I get drunk and I act a fool. Being in that product, we were out of control. I know I was as a kid. And my mom, my mother's only method of controlling us was this fair-to-rod, spoiled-a-child kind of mentality. So I got a lot of consequences, which um, I call in my book Beatings. And that occurred, and that that happened, you know, for a while. So that's how I was raised, pretty much being controlled by, now they call it abuse, but to me it was just consequences or whatever that may amount to. I know sometimes she would get drunk and get a little out of control. I remember vividly some of the, I, I guess you know, the world's greatest beatings that she implored on me. And a lot of times I I did things the I guess to warrant it, I don't know about earning it, but to warrant it, and that was the way I was raised. So um, as a little kid, that's what happened. Then around the age of nine, uh, my sisters and I got up one day and 
we walked in the living room. We've seen my mom laying on the floor and she got shot in the head. And, you know, that image stuck in my head. This is where you, you weren't home at that time? Oh, no, I was home. We were sleeping. And it was just for some odd reason, we would, we, we didn't have a bunch of money. And um, we were hungry a lot. Um, and we would get up and we would go to the refrigerator to steal food when we thought my mother was sleeping. And it was just that night we got up and we walked in the living room and there she was laying there. Any idea who did it? Um, I don't know. That's that's one of those unsolved mysteries. I I think I had a clue or thought I had a clue who did it. And because there was a person in her life at that point in time. And after she got shot, he disappeared for years. So what brought you to California? Um, I came to California because I was at the age of 14. I ran away from home. I, I couldn't take the consequences any longer. And so I started drinking and using. I was. Who were the consequences? Uh, just the beatings. Okay. By your mother? By my mother. Yes. And so I was, I was in one of those. Um, damned if you do and damned if you don't moments. Uh, back then, where I'm from, you used to go to school. If you act out in school, you get a squad by the principals um, or the teachers. The town I was in was so small, everybody knew everybody, so I'd get a squad at school, then I'd come home and get a beating. And it was just a lot, you know. And I started smoking um, weed back then, drinking a bunch, and finally just came to a head. So at 14, I started living on my own. Went out, joined the carnival, um, did the carny life for a couple of years. And from... What was your part? At the carny? Yes. Oh, I was. I ran an amusement ride called the Tip Top. It was it was a, a little thing, a platform. You sit in these little teacup things and you spin the wheel. And you go around in a little circle. And um, and that gave me a place to live. And I got to sleep underneath the rides. And um, I was free to do whatever I want. I could get high as long as I want to and things of that nature, and there was nobody to beat me. And so living that lifestyle until I was 18, and then I came home one day, and a person who I thought, because my mother survived that gunshot wound to the head, and the person who I thought had shot her, she ended up marrying later. And when I ran into this individual who I thought shot her, automatically wanted to, you know, cause harm, harm to that person. But my mother felt that the conflict between the both of us was too much. And so I made a decision and um, I came to California. Where did you go specifically? Uh, when I first got it, my friend, a friend of mine had a relative out here and the town I'm from is so small that I thought the idea of California was what I seen on TV, like the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Everybody lived in mansions. There was palm trees, swimming pools. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going here. And so we jumped in his car and drove across state. And uh, sure, I seen the Hollywood sign and I seen the palm trees and I seen the mansions and we kept on driving. And then we pulled into Linwood, California, which was not palm trees. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, none of that. Yeah. What is homelessness really like? And, I, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't really know what that really is like. Homelessness. It's an individual thing, I believe. And because I was, I was homeless from 14 to 37. And I've learned that you can adopt to almost anything if you're in that situation for a long period of time. So homelessness became a lifestyle. Um, there's no rules when you're homeless. There's, um, it's, it's an odd freedom. It's, it's, it's really an odd freedom. 
And I didn't think it was bad. But then again, that's all I knew. When you're surrounded by bad choices, you choose the better of the bad. And so being homeless out there, as long as you could defend yourself, and the drugs helped out a lot. The drugs helped out a lot. What were you using? Uh, back then, I was almost anything I could I could put into my body. You know, my last... Garbage pail or whatever. <laughs> I, I am the quintessential garbage pail. I mean, if you would tell me back then, if I put sand in my butt, I'd get high, I'd go to the beach and scoot around. <laughs> but anything, I, I drank almost anything. I smoked almost anything. I snorted almost anything. I injected almost anything. It, it didn't matter to me as long as I didn't have to deal with me. And I discovered that. So being homeless, being able to suppress any emotions, any feelings with the drugs, that, that helped out a lot. And once in a while, I'd get graced with being arrested. And that gave me a little time to, I guess, that's what saved me, really. And But when I got arrested, I'd get back out there. And so homelessness, it's... um. It's a hustle. It is. There's a lot of guilt, shame, and embarrassment that goes with it. Um, whether people realize it or not, you're still a person. You still have feelings. Um, but after a while, you just don't care. You, you really don't care. And that's the sad part about it. You just give up. I didn't have enough courage to kill myself, but circumstances wasn't bad enough for me to die. And so I just existed. Yeah, it's funny. I... Between from 91 to 95, I'm for anybody that knows me out there, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan. And from 91 to 95, off and on, usually when they hit the West Coast, I was off and running and I lived out of my car and we camped at different places. There were times where I slept in homeless shelters. Uh, we did eat from, I don't know if they still do it today, but churches used to give out food and so you'd get canned food and things like that. Of course, you know, for me, it was a self-induced decision to do that, which, and I, I can completely understand your freedom comment. Nothing you really have to do. There's no responsibilities. And you do have that sense where you do have that feeling of freedom, but you also lose a lot of other things. And I think with you, with the homelessness, I know we look at statistics and a lot of people out there truly believe that all homeless people are drug addicts, which is not true. And I think it's, I think the last I saw was maybe 50% or, or I think even maybe a little bit lower were drug users. And a lot of the other ones were mentally ill, which is a big percentage. And then you've got obviously the ones that just can't afford to live in a house or they lose their place because working minimum wage, especially in California or especially in Orange County or even LA County, it's hard to afford that stuff. And I know where you were saying that it's that image, you know, or that shame concept where people see you and maybe have this idea that, oh, you're just a dirty homeless man. And so I don't want to talk to you. Oh, stay away from that person. Did you ever get that feeling? Oh yeah. I, I got that feeling. Um, quite often and once you get to that point you really don't want to be around anybody because it i did feel shameful you know i did feel guilty i did feel angry you know i didn't know that because of my adverse childhood experience 
that I was just trying to cope with whatever it was that I'd been through. I didn't know that. And I didn't have anybody to tell me that. And so being in that situation, and once you get treated as such, then you just get to the point, well, that's what I expect. And so why should I go around anybody when I know you're going to put me down? And that's the, that's the main reason, or one of the reasons why I came up with that book, because I want people to see that there's more to homeless a, a homeless person than just being homeless. And so, yeah, there was there was a lot of different elements that come into play. Yes, I admit my drug addiction did have a part in it. Yes, I probably did have some trauma going on. There was no doubt about it. But under the same token, I still, from my experience, believe that with the right amount of caring and education and direction, you can change. I mean, the end results of me is me. And it sounds kind of odd, but I know where my life is today. But going through that whole cycle of homelessness, when the only time you can actually get a break is when you get arrested, and that's what you come to expect. And when that happened for so long, it really didn't matter because the outside stuff still occurred, but the inside stuff was worse. And until I was able to figure out what's going on inside, the outside never changed. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the common thing with most drug users. You know, we don't want to feel we want to numb ourselves. And yeah, I looked up on the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and 2019, there was roughly 568,000 people that were experiencing homelessness in the United States. And that's a lot of people. Between 2018, while homelessness in most states declined, homelessness in California increased by 16%. And I think that's kind of what we were talking about in the aspect of how do you afford to live in California if you're making minimum wage? And I know nowadays too, especially with the federal government and, you know, they've done a lot of cutting of a lot of different services for the homelessness with food stamps. And, and so that 16% was about 21,000 people that became homeless between 2018 and 2019 in California. What do you think is something that we can do? as a nation or in California to help this homeless situation? I, I think one of the most important things, we have to develop our own mindset into how we even view a person that's out there in the streets. I think it's really important that we remember that this is a person and not attached to homeless prior to the word person, because that I feel helps when you're going to deal with anybody. If you come in with an attitude, well, this person's less than or lower than, then are you going to give your 100% to helping that individual? If you walk in with an idea that, well, maybe this person might harm me. And, and granted, there are some dangerous people out there in this world. And I highly encourage people to always be safe. But if you're able to look at what your fears are and then approach a person, I think that helps out a lot. I believe that education is the key to a lot of different things. But how do you educate somebody who has low self-esteem and self-worth? How do you educate somebody that's delusional? How do you educate somebody that's addicted? 
there's there's a lot of different elements to being able to reach out for people. I think we have um, part part of the battle in play, which I think could use some tuning up, like housing people. Um, housing people is a great thing. It gives you the ability to take care of your food, your safety. There's more to that because we also have this herd mentality. If I took 10 people that were homeless and put those 10 people into a home, that entire homeless environment or thought process is going to incorporate that home. So you really never resolve your issue. I believe in a social vaccine model. You take one individual and you rehabilitate them, whatever you want to consider that term to be, and then put that person back in an environment. But you can't do it on a large scale because you'll bring that whole thought process with you. I know for me, I I was one person placed in an environment of 30 people that were positive. And so I turned into that positive individual. And so what I'm able to do is to educate people because thank God I'm a teacher and I'm able to educate people to go out and implement some of these things. Uh, the end product of what I'm doing right now is um, Brown Manor. And that's going to be a place for homeless people. And a lot of people have asked me, are you going to take in a bunch of people? Because it's a 9,000 square foot piece of property. But if I bring in 100 people, then that environment will become a homeless camp. And where is this? Uh, Brown Manor is located in Mansfield, Ohio. And because it's, it's the only place at this point in my life that I can afford to buy a piece of property that big. But there is homelessness everywhere. And if I can use the same model that was used for me and be able to cookie cut it somewhere else, then maybe that can that can help. Housing housing is great. I love it. But there's some rules and stipulations. If we can house and educate at the same time, I think the combination of both of those would be um, helpful to resolving our issues. That idea that you're talking about of hate, you know, or the dislike or the viewing of people as less than is easily correlated with substance abuse. You know, we have a nation where people look at, again, them as dirty or hateful or they're horrible people, the people that abuse drugs. And this is something that I've been fighting in terms of getting people to understand that that is not what this is. And I did a podcast where I talked about behavioral addictions and that everybody, everybody that's out there can probably identify with something that they do compulsively, whether it's a behavior or it's if it's a chemical. So if everybody can identify some commonality or some similarity or some way to relate to this, that's how we're going to solve the problems that we're ultimately needing to solve. You know, our country still sits on this war on drugs. You know, we're on a war on drugs. War makes it look horrible, makes those people the enemies. You know, how can you have a war on an inanimate object? You know, and we're ultimately, the war has to be with people. And so that's where our government and our federal government and our state governments need to take a step back from that. Because if we want to solve a problem, you know, we had Donald Trump that was, you know, going back to the idea that we need to execute the people that are bringing drugs in, into this country. And usually it's not the big dealers or the, the mafia that are 
bringing them in. It's the people that are bringing them in that just want to get the drugs because they need to get high. And so now we're going to be executing our people because, again, we're at a war. These are things that really upset me. And it fits exactly along the lines of homelessness, that the homeless are horrible people. They're sick people. They're dirty people. The drug addicts are evil. And until we're able to, again, take a step back and remove that hatred, we're never going to find solutions to anything. So I wanted to ask you a question then also, because I know in your book you talked about racism and how this ultimately possibly and probably played a lot into your dislike for yourself. Well, ra- racism is pretty – it's an interesting term for me because, I, like I said, I come from a small town where um, basically the only two nationalities were someone that was African-American or somebody that was Caucasian. That was it. And we didn't see racism that much in our little town. Because everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody. I mean – I grew up listening to Kiss and Led Zeppelin, um, Pink Floyd, you know, as well as Parliament, Funkadelics, Bill Withers. And yes, it was there, but people didn't really expose themselves in our town. And I come out and I, I, I don't, I try not to see the world as being in a racist view because everybody's everybody and people are people. And, but I, some of the subtle things of racism that I have experienced is because, um, I know I, I went to school for a long time to be able to, um, I guess articulate things in a fashionable way in which can pretty much persuade people into, um, hearing what I have to say. And I remember being on the phone once and a person told me, yes, you got this apartment for sure. It's yours. Guaranteed. And I show up, and all of a sudden, he sees a black guy, and he's like, oh, this place is rented. Okay. I see that. I also have been working in situations in which I know I do have a high education now. I have a bachelor of science degree in nursing, but yet I still have a ceiling that I can only go so high, where I see someone else with less education but looks different than me, be able to get that privilege. Um, The white privilege? I guess if that's what you want to call it, you know. That's what everybody always says. You know? Yeah, you know. And, and again, I try to, and I try not to see the world that way because I don't want to get trapped yeah. in that mindset. You know, people are people. Um, a homeless person. And when, when you think about racism, it's really interesting, you know. People, racism and discrimination, what's the difference? You know, when you're homeless, people treat you different. You know, when you have a different... Um, Gender, people treat you different. We have a different color of your skin. People treat you different. When you're poor, people treat you different. And when you're rich, people treat you different. And so to just center everything around one little aspect of racism, it's it's there. Some parts of the country is worse than others. And it goes across the spectrum. There's I've, I've been in some communities in which if you're a Caucasian individual, you should not go there. Okay, I've been in communities in which when you're an African-American, you should not be here. When I was when I was doing drugs and my last drug was methamphetamine, I would go to places. I remember I got arrested once and a police officer asked me, how were you able to go into that hotel room knowing who those people are? 
because where I purchased methamphetamines, it wasn't from the African-American community. It was from an intense racist group. And I didn't think about that. You know, all I thought about was I need to pick up some drugs. They got the best drugs. And they just wanted your money. And they just wanted my money. (laughs) And so we got along fine. When I went to prison, I seen segregation. And I understand that you have a certain set of rules. And even though one of my close friends was a Caucasian individual, we couldn't hang out together in prison. So I understand racism. I, I do. If I put my attention towards looking at it from a negative perspective versus an educational perspective, then my mindset will change. But I believe that everything's within the individual. Everything. I've talked to people and they, t- they tell me I'm not racist or I've been, I've been accused of being racist. And I just look at people and go, okay, that's fine. That's your opinion. You're allowed to have that opinion. I, I wouldn't tell when I, 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 I was able to navigate life and become what I consider successful, my version of Park Avenue. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm a director of nursing at a facility. I've, um, I've, I've worked really hard to get to where I'm at in society. And I was afraid to even tell anybody that, hey, look back 30 years and what you're going to see is a convict because I didn't want that stigma. And up until my publisher said, you know what, you need to put a real face on this book. Then I came out of my closet. I think, I think it's amazing that, you know, I was, I was saying, I, I look at that cover. I love that cover. It's, it's a powerful cover. Yeah. And, and now it's, it's, it's interesting because now people get to see me as this successful person that still was this homeless person, you know, still was this person that had childhood trauma and how, how I was able to be resilient enough to bounce back. And that's the message I want to get to people. If, if you feel animosity toward another individual, ask yourself, and there's, I think there's a chapter about asking why. Why do you feel this way towards this other individual? A lot of people, and there's a there's a statement in um, one of the books I read that talks about contempt prior to investigation. There's a lot of people who don't like something and they don't know why. I always go back to Brussels sprouts when I was a little kid. I didn't like Brussels sprouts. They look like little green brains. There's no way. But then as I got older and I learned you put some salt and pepper and some cheese on it. I love Brussels sprouts. You know, and the same thing comes to dealing with homeless people. How can you say that you don't like that person and you don't know that person? You know, same thing with racism. How can you say you don't like that other color when you don't know that color? And so try not to fall into that contempt prior to investigation. But getting back into what happens when you take a group of people and put them in one place, they're still going to think like that group of people. Maybe the individual might want to say, let me step back and live my life and make my own decisions instead of what feels good for the moment and then come up with my own mindset. In my book, I have a chapter called Think, Think, Think. Mm. And it's about the idea of how our society fails to teach people to think for themselves, that we seem to have this tendency of thinking through the minds of other people. And you look at a lot of the racism, and a lot of racism is passed down through generations. I'll give you an example. This was really powerful for me when I had that program in Anaheim. It's called uh, Serenity Life Counseling. And 
we did a lot of alternative sentencing. And of course, being in Orange County, we got a lot of clientele that had probably spent half their life in prison. And a lot of them were with P9, some of the um, Aryan Brotherhood, you know, Nazi lowriders, you know, these types of individuals, of course, being in Orange County. <laughs> and one thing that I tried to teach them all is that, you know, if you want to stay out of prison, you got to get out of prison in your mind. It's the only way you're going to do it. And I remember a guy that came in, I don't know if I'd said this before in another podcast, but I think this really sits well in this because I had a guy that came in who, and, and as I learned his story, he was in his fifties. He had spent probably about half his life in and out of prison. And I learned about his childhood. He grew up with a father who was a member of the KKK. And so the teachings and what he is taught is black people are less than, they're stupid, you know, and all these other things that are taught by these various different hate groups to make people of color look worse or look bad or better than them. And you combine that with the prison, like you had said, that you have to join up with a race uh, within prison to survive, usually. And he was actually a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. And I had hired a therapist named, his name was Leroy Thompson, and probably one of the smartest therapists I've ever met in my life. And he was a black guy. And he came in and he would, you know, do various different groups and some of the clients he would meet with during individual therapy. We did get this guy out of custody and he came into our program. The first time that he met Leroy, he sees him and he comes into my office and he sits down and he goes, I'm not going to sit in group with that fucking, we know the word. And I told him, all I want you to do is I want you to sit in the group, sit in the back, don't participate, just listen. That's all I want you to do is listen. And of course, I brought Leroy into my office and I told Leroy <laughs> what the situation was just so he had a heads up and also to not necessarily attempt to get this guy to participate. And so this client agreed. He said, you know what? I will. I'll go ahead and sit in there. And he comes in after group and he goes, you know what? All right. That wasn't that bad. After a month, maybe a month and a half of him being there. This client comes into my office and he goes, I want him as my therapist. And I was thinking like, wow, that's powerful. And I thought about the reasoning behind this. And I kind of came to a conclusion on this was that I think he realized that there was one thing that may have started his changing process when he realized that maybe there was one thing that he was taught that was a lie. Black people are stupid because he used to say that. And he came to that realization that, okay, you know what? With Leroy, that guy's not stupid. And so with one thing that ultimately changed, I think that's what was that process. And I think so education, I think, is really powerful. Just like you had said, to have the ability for people to interact with different people. And I think, honestly, that a lot of racism is fear. I think that's where it sits. I think these people are afraid. I think most racists, even though they try to act strong, they live in fear. And so then comes the question, what can we do to ultimately potentially help this situation? I wrote a play years ago when I actually had this program, and it was called Choices, the Question of Human Nature. And 
I thought about when I was writing it, I wanted to write something that was really going to smack people in the face. I was really going to hit people and get them to think. And of course, I was living in Orange County. A lot of Orange County is full of white people. And I also believe that a lot of people in Orange County don't believe racism exists. I wrote this play and I started it with racism. And there were different topics that played out throughout this play. And there were all these various different stories that eventually come together. It started out with very, and it was very racist. And I wanted it to be that way. I wanted it to be something that people would see like, wow. I had a really good friend of mine who did, um, he actually performed in a lot of plays out in LA County. I gave this thing to him to read it. He was also a black guy. And that's exactly the conclusion that he came to when he was reading it. He was like, wow, this is crazy, but you got to put this on because again, in Orange County, I don't think a lot of people believe it even exists anymore. I see comments on Facebook portray the fact that it doesn't exist or also very racist posts on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it, and it's funny with me because I hate the concept of identifying people by color. I've always thought about it as kind of weird in a sense. And even the concept of African American. Have you been to Africa? Uh, no. So, and I have a, I have a student in my class and we laugh about that all the time because she doesn't want to be called that at all. And, uh, and that's exactly what we say. It's like, why would you be called African American if you've never even been to Africa? <laughs> yeah. But we don't, but we don't identify other races or especially Caucasians as European. I'm half Swedish and my last name's McCoy. So there's some Scottish. And I don't think I refer to myself as Swedish, Scottish, American. <laughs> For me, because um, it, it's, it's interesting about the terms like, now that you took away my African-American identity, I don't know what to call myself. But um, and it's funny because if I say I'm black, my skin's actually brown, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so I'm just Anthony. And um, it's it's interesting because most of the stuff, if, if somehow – and I hope living through examples so other people can see that and want to change. If somehow we can encourage people or convince them that it's not the teacher who wants to teach, but it's the student who wants to learn. If we can develop that mindset, then people can be open enough to receive what our concepts are. Cause I, I teach a class and I can, I can throw out all kinds of concepts. I can give all kinds of tests. I, I can send you to all type of places for research. But if you're not willing to learn, you'll never get that knowledge. And so how do I, or how do we, not I, because it's, it's not a me thing, it's a we thing, because it takes more than me to make a difference. And so how can we convince people or create something that will stimulate their appetite enough to make them to want to be open to something different? If you bombard somebody with some, with some information continuously, that would get them to start thinking and believing. And actually, there are studies to say how neurochemically your brain will change to start fashioning to believing that aspect of something to be truth. I don't have millions of dollars to have a whole bunch of ads. What is important, I think, is for 
individuals to find some time for themselves and then find time to understand themselves. I was, I was thinking about this on the way up here is that, um, this whole masking thing. And, um, and I think in analogies and things like that, this, this COVID virus, what that has done, whether people realize it or not, is it sort of forced them to be with them. You, you don't have the distractions of work or anything like that. You're isolated pretty much in your house with you. Then the real you comes out. And how do you deal with that you that comes out? Or when you're wearing a mask and what you're exhaling, actually you're inhaling. So what are you putting out there that you're living with yourself? And I want people, if they can, to take a few minutes and think about who they are, what they want, and what are they willing to become what they want. And that's one of the things I think could assist individuals in being able to get a different perspective. Because once you start once you start looking for something different, then you'll see something different. But how do you how do you convince yourself that you want to see something different? And that's one of the odd blessings of this COVID thing is because now you really don't have a choice but to see who you are. I've always thought that the really, really healthy people, the ones that are healthier, are the people that are able to learn how to sit still and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's it, being okay with themselves. Right. You know? Right. And, uh, and I've loved it. This has literally given me time to do that stuff in my backyard. Uh, otherwise, I'd never be able to have that time. And it's something that we've talked about. And, uh, and so now we actually have that time <laughs> to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I personally have not found it to be that difficult. And... But I've also had that ability and learned that concept of being able to sit still and be okay with it. And one of the greatest places you learn that is in jail. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's where it started for me. I, I've always been a, somewhat of a loner, but that was by design. Because, again, the adverse childhood experiences sort of made me go into myself to save myself. Then... I, I went to jail and I was learning, I learned to adopt and adjust to that, to that five by nine cell. And I've done that enough to be comfortable with that. And so now that this COVID thing is occurring, I don't know if it's by choice or by chance. I'm able to live by myself and be okay with that. One of the gifts that I have is I'm a, I'm the director of nursing at my facility. And so I'm at work every day and we're on what I call high COVID alert. Everything is constantly being monitored and changed and tested and all of that stuff. And some people are panicking and I just developed the mindset that I get to be a service and what's going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing I can do to change it. I will do my best to maintain safety. I'll do my best to keep my clients safe, but I get the privilege of doing that. And so while other people may have the have the misfortune of having to be in the house, I'm I'm lucky when I finally get in the house because I'm I'm always out there. And and I have found that me time is good time. Because again, it gets me to reflect on everything, it gets me closer to um conversation with my higher power, who I choose to call God. It gets me to reflect on the events that's in front of me that um 
allows me to become a better person. And so, and, and, and again, because of my, um, the design that I was giving through my life, whether it's adverse or good or bad or whatever it is, it's just life to me. But I feel that I put enough substances in my body and I've eaten out of trash cans and, and put enough germs in here that COVID really might not have a chance against my immune system. <laughs> it might not. And if it does, then it's my time to go. Have you always had that strong belief in God? Um, I've always believed in God, but the turning point came um, when I was two years sober and I did a God experiment. I sat at a park bench one day and I was two years sober and I asked, I asked directly because I've always prayed and, you know, I've always found God saved me and God, let's make a deal with the judge. But I sat down with complete sincerity at two years of sobriety and I said, you know what, God, I know cars run on gas and I know this concrete object of a bench is solid. I know this for a fact. Now, if you want me to believe in you, prove to me that you exist. And I said that wholeheartedly. And at that moment in my life, I got such a profound experience that cascaded me into who I am today. I, I know, I know for a fact that there is a God in the miracle business. I know for a fact that I'm able to be comfortable with me enough to relate, understand, acknowledge, and see exactly how life is in front of me and apply the right enough principles to benefit from what it what it is that I have. At that point in time, I adopted a concept that I was born with nothing, and when I die, I'm not going to take nothing. Everybody that's born, there's, there's going to be one thing that's going to occur, whether you like it or not. You're going to die. Absolutely. You know, and in between birth and death, all of this stuff I get to play with. It's not mine. So my dad always taught me there's two guarantees in life, taxes and death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I have that mindset and that's what I walk around with every day. So if I get something and it goes away, it wasn't mine anyway. So I let it go easily now. You know, if I, I, I get to attach emotions to things as I choose to, you know, now granted, I'm not, I'm not Mother Teresa or Gandhi. I am not. I'm a human being and I have my issues, but I'm able to see clearer faster since I have this relationship. You know, I, I'm a, I, I amaze myself and it's not like I'm egotistical. I'm just thoroughly amazed of what I'm able to do after I found that belief. I, I have, um, you know, my story, I've been in and out of jails, in and out of prisons. I, I, I got multiple felonies. I really do. And most of them are drug related charges. And somehow all of that drug wannabe dealing and drug using, God turns me into a nurse. And my career being in nursing, it wasn't like I just got to go to school, got out and became a nurse. Now I had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops because of my history. But doors were open enough that I was able to walk through them. I, when I got, um, when I got hired as a teacher at a community college, one of the things the presidents asked me is, why do you want to be a teacher? And I told them, I want to change the world, but I'm not a politician. I'm not rich. So the best thing I could do is teach. Every opportunity I have, 
is is a gift, and I enjoy this gift fully, and I'm and I'm grateful for it. At that point in time, I I learned to realize that every little thing I have is a gift. If I wake up in the morning, that's a gift. If I can see, that's a gift. If I can breathe, that's a gift. If I have batteries for my remote control, that's a gift. And I'm grateful for all of that stuff. And this is what has developed me into who I am today. I I do have my history. Everybody has history. You know, I do have my lumps and bumps of life. I really do. And not everything is smooth going forward. And I understand that. But I see a bigger picture now than I ever could before. All because of that one day of two years of sobriety and my question to my higher power. Yeah, your story's your story's amazing. Going from uh, of one going from Ohio to California, <laughs> and not living within the palm trees. Yeah, <laughs> and then being homeless, and, uh, and and having that ability to step up and out, and do some great things, and. Uh, so I want to make a comment here. I know with your book that when people purchase your book, mm-hmm. it goes to Brown Manor. Goes to Brown Manor. Where are you at with that so far? And right now, Brown Manor is still in construction. I what Brown Manor is is, uh, and there's there's always a story behind everything. One day, I, I have a brother that's still out there in the streets. I love him to death. He's older than me. I talked about my brother left home earlier. But my brother's older than me, and he's out there doing what he does, which is practicing his addiction. The results are the same as mine. You're homeless, no place else to go. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't never close to my family, but since I've been sober and I have this new life, I'm trying to make amends. And so part of that is getting back in with my family. My brother contacted me one day, and he says, I don't, you know, I could use some help. I'm living in this abandoned doctor's office, and and I felt that, okay, well, I have a few resources now. It's like, what's the name of this doctor's office? And I will purchase this building so you got a place to live. And the property back east is relatively cheap. And I don't, I'm don't, i not rich or anything, but I'll, this isn't my stuff. It's God's stuff. I'll give all my money to somebody. And so I asked my brother what was the name of this place and who owned it. And he couldn't put it together, which I understand because I've been there and I've done that. So he couldn't put it together. And so I got frustrated and I decided, okay, I'm just going to buy a house for people that, you know, that are homeless. And I went on the internet and I found this piece of property. It was reasonable and I purchased it and I call it Brown Manor. And what Brown Manor is, is a um, 9,000 square foot house. It's a, it's a 1916 mansion. And, and I, pr- I pray about everything and this is what was placed before me. And so I got the house and, um, we're in, we're we're in construction of it, and um, it was sitting empty for a while. And I bought I bought the house without ever even seeing it. I just felt that this is what's supposed to be, and so I bought the house. And when I finally went to close the deal, I flew out there and I finally seen the house. Now I walk into this this abandoned mansion that's been sitting for years, and it was nighttime. And I walk in the back door, and the very first thing I see was there was a dried bat hanging off the light. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, Lord, you know, and that was my introduction to Frown Manor. I walked through the rooms and it was dirty and things were falling apart. And I was slightly disappointed, you know, because I've invested a lot of money into this house and I do what I normally do. I came out the house and I prayed 
And then the sun came up, and I went back in that same house, and it was the most beautiful place I've ever walked into in my whole life. It's hard to see it at night. And- yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to see things when you're in the darkness. And looking at it, I was walking through, and I was touching the walls, and I seen some of the ornate things. And like, you know what? This is This is God's house, you know? And from that point, I finished the deal. I came out here, and I've just been putting money into it. I get reports and pictures of the construction that's going on and is getting cleaned up. We still have a ways to go. And so I got an idea that proceeds from this book can go towards helping out Brown Manor. Because, again, this isn't my stuff. This is all God's stuff. When I'm gone, it's still going to be there. And so everything from the book is going to Brown Manor. We have a um, GoFundMe page out there for Brown Manor. Um, I'm doing interviews and doing what I can to bring revenue to to that house because I want people to have the same experience in life that I got. I want people to somehow be able to be educated enough to develop this mindset that everything's going to be okay right now. And by clearing away all the wreckage that's inside your head, you're able to visualize what you want to be. And so that's that's Brown Manor. How how far out do you think until it's ready to go? Right now we're doing a roof because it, there's some severe leakage. Then after the roof, we have to do a new furnace system. So it, it depends. Everything is based upon the amount of revenue I can create. Right now I'm working two jobs. And, of course, I have to live in California, so my bills are important. But every available penny that I have go towards that. What's the homeless situation look like in Ohio? Where Brown Manor is, um, I know that there's some homeless there. Exactly the statistics and things like that, I haven't looked into it. But I do know that um, I took my nephew from the streets of uh, Detroit, Michigan, and moved him down to Ohio. So that's one less person being homeless in Michigan. And he's um, pretty much my overseer of that project. And Again, he's a product of the same environment I came from. He's a little rough around the edges, but it's helping him develop self-esteem and self-worth. The exact number of the homeless people there, I don't know. I know back east, because of factories closing down and things like that, there's a high um, drug abuse rate out there. So that would probably factor into that. But if there's 5, 10, 15, 100 it, it, it doesn't matter as long as we can help one. As long as we can help one. So how does it work? You'll have, obviously, the bedrooms. and How many people can you take in? And my idea is I want to put six people in that entire house. And those six people will start getting their life in order. Those six people will become educated. Those six people will change their mindset. And then they can bring in other people. Because there's two parts to that mansion. There's the old part, which is was built, which was built in 1916. That's you know has all the old fixtures and things. Then there's the new part that they added on in 1950, um, 1957, I think. And the new part is where the people will live, and the old part is where people will get educated. And so those six people, again, if you bring in 30 people, that environment will change to those 30 people. Six people. I think is a fair amount of uh, people that's able to change. So once those six change, then maybe those six can help six more 
and so on and so on. And I know that's kind of what we say, too. I mean, literally, if we can, if we can just help one person, just one. then we've made a difference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you for coming. And uh, I think this was absolutely amazing. I love hearing about your book. I'm going to be very excited to read your book. Thank you for giving me one. Tell everybody out there again where they can get your book, um, any contact information or anything that, that uh, you'd, you'd want to share. Okay. My book is called From Park Bench to Park Avenue. Um, it's available on Amazon right now. There's also a recovery bookstore in Long Beach uh, called Easy Does It uh, Books and Gifts. They have it there. It's also available um, if you're in the recovery community in Orange County. The um, Anaheim Milano Club has it. You can always go to my website, anthonyhowardbrown.com, and be able to get a book from there. And so um, it, it's out there. I'm, I'm really pleased or, or blessed or happy that I have this opportunity to come spend time with you, Eric. I appreciate all that you do for all of us out here. I just, um, I think that every one of us individually has such a huge part to connect the whole, you know, and so I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to come in here with you. You know, it's got another chapter I have in my book is let our voices echo. We need to hear stories. We need to hear people talk, even the people that are losing loved ones. We need to share those stories so we can all become educated. Jody Barber, like we were talking about, is such an amazing story, and she's such a great advocate. And due to the pain and things that she dealt with, loss of her son, she has probably saved thousands of lives. And your story is absolutely amazing. That story of redemption, I love it. You know, it's like I was saying in the very beginning, I just like the... You know, to hear the stories of the people that have been dragged through the depths of hell and are able to stand up and to show people that we can change, we can be different, and we can share our story to help other people get out of that and help people realize that life can be great. Life can be fun. We still can get high. We just do it differently. We find those ways to get high without drugs. I was saying outside, you know, what I'm searching for today is nothing different than I was searching for when I was getting loaded. I've just now found ways that are natural, that will allow me to stay high the rest of my life. Drugs and alcohol will not. They're just going to destroy that ability at some point in time. And I know you experience that, you know, even going out and speaking to people, talking to people, sharing your story. The feeling and that pleasure we get by helping people. And that's what's so amazing about this. So I want to thank you again. I really appreciate you. And I appreciate what you're doing. I just think life is groovy. I love that groovy. Life is groovy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening to Recovering Through Highness. Again, my name is Eric McCoy. And uh, look forward to our next episode.